Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, is Kay Burley leaving Sky? Will she be joining Team GB News? We speculate wildly. Also on the programme, as BBC4 stops commissioning new shows, what's left of the channel and its mission? Plus, Spotify buys the next clubhouse. We look at the press outlets claiming furlough, what it says about the state of the industry, and we give you every sub-editor's nightmare in the form of our media quiz. It's all to come on this edition of the Media Podcast. And joining me today, via the magic of uh, etc., it is Planning Director at Edelman, Karen Robinson. Hello, Karen. Hello, Ollie. Uh, It's April Fool's Day on the day we're recording. Um, So the media are hard at work actively creating fake news. Uh, Has anything caught your eye? Well, I have to confess to having been taken in by one, um, at least for a little while. It's been many years since I've actually been fooled by an April Fool's prank. But today, um, in my local neighbourhood of Walthamstow, I read a local media report that a a weight rose was coming to Walthamstow and got briefly excited. Oh, I can imagine how excited that must have made you. I was briefly very excited until I got until about chapter paragraph four when they started mocking the citizens of uh, weight rose for our supposed affinity for quinoa, and I thought this isn't real is it that's not nice you get the slap in the face and you realize you're the target for satire yeah all at the same time they Uh, nailed me (laughs) uh also joining us uh former broadcasting exec and all-round media guru professor liz howell hello liz hi what do you think of april fool's day as a tradition does it still have a place because it does kind of erode trust doesn't it in news sources yeah it's horrible i really dislike it but on the other hand it's a long-term tradition and it's very british in its way i suppose i don't know if other countries do it i'm sure they do but oh, I the think americans it love particularly, it yeah. yeah that's true but probably from a, a british origin i don't know the germans have a similar thing don't they well they like to put out press releases for volkswagen that they then uh, i was just going to say <laughs> volkswagen but i i do remember the uh, very famous um i don't know if Ian and Karen would remember it, but there was one that The Guardian did years ago about an island called Sans Serif, and they did a whole um, a sort of extra supplement about this island and what you could do on this island and what it grew, and no, 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 no. And of course, those in the know knew that Sans Serif was a font, and it was a sort of printer's journos type in joke, but I remember people were really taken in by it. And I also remember when I was a kid, on Panorama, they did a thing about spaghetti being grown in Italy. That's one and of the classics, I, isn't it? I can yeah. absolutely, I can trees. remember my mother turning to my father and said, it doesn't grow there, does it, Fred? And, you know, they were, well, my mother was particularly taken in by it. But it also makes you realise quite how, how it was much easier then when people weren't quite so knowledgeable as they are now. And they could be um, taken in, conned a lot more by the April Fool 
Sometimes I, I think you're so worried about the April Fool that you become sort of grumpy and truculent all day. I should say the, the Ian you made reference to that is also with us is uh, LBC broadcaster, author uh, Ian Dale. Hello, Ian. Hello. Um, this isn't an April Fool's, we think. Uh, <laughs> news just breaking as we record that Kay Burley may not be returning to Sky News, which uncannily was your prediction on the Media Podcast Prediction Special this year. Yeah, wasn't it just? I got one right anyway. Um, it does seem look as if it's true. I've just checked her Twitter feed and all mentions of Sky News have been eradicated from it. So it's been reported by The Express and The Mirror and is about to start trending on Twitter, I suspect. I don't think this is a great surprise. I think it would have been quite difficult for her to go back to that job. Uh, the question is, what sh will she do next? Of course, she started Sky on Sky News with Andrew Neil back in 1989. So people will naturally draw the conclusion that she will go to... Um, uh, to GB News. Um, they've already appointed two female presenters for their breakfast show, Kirsty Gallagher and Rosie Wright. Um, it's not impossible that she could go yeah, there. But she never really wanted to do breakfast at Sky, did she? She was kind of put on breakfast because, you know, they needed to do something with their breakfast show because it never really quite recovered after Eamon Holmes left. Well, that's, that is true. Um, but given that they filled up most of the, the rest of their schedule, I'm not sure where else she would fit. But does she fit their sort of presenter type anywhere? I'm not sure that she's particularly right-wing, shall we say. Liz Howell, you're raising your hand. Is it yeah, to say I that you can have a breakfast show with more than two women? Yeah, and you can have more than the, the number of women that they've already got on, on GB um, TV. They're going to have to um, think about it anyway because they've... I, did a sort of count up and from what I could see they've got 14 names that named presenters and five of them are women so their women are lagging behind and they don't seem to be the bigger names or in the bigger slots so a big name like uh, Kay Burley would be a real a real coup for them I would have thought and we mustn't say you know oh it's breakfast therefore it's got to be women on the grounds that women get up and make your breakfast I don't know what that thinking is I mean Kay is a very competent journalist and could go anywhere in the schedule and do extremely well, I would think. And they can always, with something like that, squeeze, you know, there's there's weekends to cover, there's all sorts of things going on in the schedule. Do you think, Karen, that if all the presenters that do provoke a reaction, that do have very strong flavours, are migrating away to GB News and possibly this new Murdoch effort, that actually Sky News might be looking not to replace them with equally spiky people, that actually the niche for Sky News might be to look even more like the BBC than they do. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that Sky Sky's strategy, I mean, the news is a lost leader for Sky. So they really use it as a reputational enhancer, right? So they use it to drive trust and affiliation from amongst their um, some of their stakeholder audiences more so than to drive a commercial audience or a, or a consumer audience. So as much as they obviously, you know, at Sky, they always want their ratings to be maximized. Um, for them, it's about credibility and it's about reputation. And they've done a great job with the news service of, of building out that credibility and reputation. So I suspect they will be looking for presenters that have a lot of gravitas rather than, as you say, spikier ones in the next round. We'll see. Okay, uh, let's get on with some other stuff. But well done, Ian, for correctly predicting that back in uh, late December. Um, we're going to start with the BBC. Uh, there's nothing quite to compete with the seismic flood of announcements that we poured over in our last edition. Uh, but the Beeb have quietly this week let it be known that BBC Four will no longer produce new shows and will become an archive for the broadcaster. So it sounds to me a bit like, Liz, they're essentially evolving from the TV version of Radio 4 to the TV version of Radio 4 Extra. Uh, do you think people will notice the difference? Yeah, I think they will notice the difference. And one of the things that I'm interested in, in investigating, which I can't see anywhere, is if they're going to still be taking material from um, European and um, Scandinavian channels, which is something I really liked 
about um, BBC Four. You could get some really interesting drama on there, and that's what I went there for. I think the idea of um, an archive channel is interesting and could be quite sensible. And if they're going to, for example, another of the stories is they're going to bring back BBC Three, so it's not going to be necessary necessarily all all bad news um things have got to change and, and bbc4 if they're building up bbc2 has always had this confusion with bbc2 so i don't think it's necessarily awful bean counters ruining a fabulous national treasure i think it could be quite a, a sensible evolution yeah i mean i suppose the question politically Ian, because there's always a political dimension to these decisions these days is whether a channel of repeats is a good use of the license fee or the digital spectrum, and whether that's something they can justify. I mean, it might be. They might be able to say, yes, this is the best way to get value for money. Well, a lot of people think that BBC One and BBC Two have become channels for repeats as well. So I'm not sure this is a particularly innovative move. I, I actually don't think it's a bad one. I think it would have been a shame to have just got rid of BBC Four, as I know you, you were speculating on one of the recent editions um, of this podcast. I, I think that uh, they have such a vast archive. If they can make it have a popular appeal. I don't mean just repeating things like Only Fools and Horses and things like that, but they have so many dramas, they have so many documentaries that don't see the light of day um, for years and years. And I think they really could make the most of this. And it could actually get a much bigger audience than it, than it gets now. I don't know how often we all watch BBC Four, but it, I would say it's kind of once in a blue moon. And it's almost... I've always thought BBC Four was BBC Two light in a way, um, or heavy in some ways. They, they I mean, what, what did I see the other week? They had a thing about um, a w Welsh poetry, and I was thinking, is, is that really something for a sort of mass TV channel? I'm not sure it is. Well, this is it. So, Karen, both Liz and Ian have made the point that you can see a lot of similar stuff on BBC Two. This might bolster BBC Two. I don't know if you saw what Armando Nucci was tweeting about with regard to the thick of it, but he was saying, well, that launched on BBC Four, if that hadn't happened, there'd be no Veep because, you know, the thick of it wouldn't have uh, led to In the Loop, which wouldn't have led to Veep. I mean, is that actually true? I'd have commissioned Armando Iannucci to make a new political comedy for BBC Two, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, I mean, now that he's Armando Iannucci, yes. But before he was the person we know as Armando Iannucci, maybe not. I think you need he to give creators... He was the person we knew as Armando Iannucci <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> but you need to give creators a place to, to get started and do slightly riskier things and slightly uh, things that appeal to a slightly different audience. So I don't, know that it's a, I don't know that it's going to be, you know, the end of the world as we know it for Channel 4 to switch to that. But I do think it's... A, or BBC 4 to switch to that. But I do think it's a bit of a shame in that the suspicion is that it's going to mean, you know, the net number of new programs produced is going to be fewer, which means each number of pro each new program produced is going to be that little bit riskier and therefore, um, you know, perhaps a little bit safer. I think BBC4 was a place where you could you could be a little bit more experimental. And I think that's 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 a good thing. But proportionally, the amount of new material on BBC4 was relatively small, wasn't it? And I think a lot of people did associate it with buying in exciting and interesting external international product and I, I'd like to know what's going to happen to that as much as about the um the production itself because production will find a place there will be an area somewhere where they'll try out the new productions um, and give them an airing whether or not BBC4 was the right sort of incubation for production I don't know anyway it was it's a big leap to get onto BBC4 even so perhaps there'll be other areas for that but I would like some reassurance that all these great scandi noirs aren't going to go away they're not I should I should clarify on that so yeah they've they've said there will be new storyvilles still on BBC4 and there will be international shows still on BBC4 great. well in that case I'm relatively happy <laughs> <laughs> well I guess I mean the stuff I used to watch is the kind of slightly nerdy kind of Neil Brand Mark Kermode stuff 
But that's so BBC, you know, this idea that we'll do an hour-long programme about how George Gershwin structured chords, that you kind of think, well, that will end up on iPlayer anyway. They're not going to not make that stuff, because no one else makes that stuff. What they've lost on BBC4 is, right at the beginning, they used to do lots of political documentaries, which I absolutely loved. Things that may not have ever been done on BBC2. They haven't been doing those for several years. BBC2 have stopped doing them. I mean, Michael Cockrell used to obviously do these hour-long, marvellous documentaries. Nobody's doing those now. Uh, and now that uh, the effectively the BBC politics department has been abolished and it's all been subsumed into news, news don't really make programmes. They make news programmes, but they don't really understand documentaries. And I really worry that on the BBC now there is little outlet for proper documentaries that... that, that and I'm not, I hope I'm not sounding too much like an old git, but they, those ones that we used to remember, that I'm sure, Liz, you were involved in, in um, commissioning a lot of them in the 80s and 90s. It, I think it's a really sh real shame that the public service broadcast of this country is no longer doing that kind of thing or not doing it seriously enough. Okay, let's move on to audio now. And uh, Spotify have found yet more money down the sofa. Uh, this time they've gone and bought a live audio social media thingy known as Locker Room. Uh, it is part of a deal that includes parent company Betty Labs. Uh, Karen, what do these words mean that I'm saying? <laughs> um, well, I'm still working it out myself, but Locker Room fundamentally is uh, what they call a social audio platform currently focused around sport. So I think the presumption is that at some point, sport's a really good um, opportunity for um, live audio because obviously you can build a community around it really easily. But I think the intention is that they would take that technology, probably rebrand it for something a bit broader than just sport um, and and launch it out there. Probably I would, I would envision it being sort of like a clubhouse competitor or something similar um so it's exciting i think there's a we're seeing a lot of proliferation of these uh of, of these platforms i think a lot of them will fail um but i think spotify have been pretty aggressive in trying to position itself to to completely dominate the audio marketplace so this is yet another example of that and uh i, I wouldn't bet against their strategy they're, <laughs> they're they're pretty dominant right now it's maybe in the nature of things liz that people look at this kind of thing and clubhouse was the first uh, to really make waves and think, well, is this going to kill podcasts? Is this going to kill radio? As if there's sort of always a winner. But it seems like a completely new space, this idea of kind of live interactive audio. It means, <laughs> As it I means say very... this, I'm looking at Ian Dell thinking, is it a phone-in? But I mean, it is kind of... <laughs> It is kind of new in the sense that it's, you know, for the internet generation, I guess, and it can exist alongside, can't it? Always new new, new um, advances can be in parallel. You know, canals didn't die because of railways and, you know, video didn't kill you, um, the, the radio star and all of that sort of thing. But, I mean, I actually have a problem under understanding what this clubhouse thing is, so perhaps you could explain that to me before I can even begin to opine. I mean, having read through acres of material and I, I still don't know, what do I do with it? Where do I get it? Do I have to be doing sports? at the same time or something or other what is it yes you have to be skipping at the same time that is important <laughs> no well I, it's, i'm out i'm out liz and i are so much on the same page on this because i keep getting invites to clubhouse and i'm thinking I, I don't really know what it is i probably will join it just to see what it is at some point but there's only so many hours in the day to do social media -y type things and i spend half my life on twitter i'm not particularly interested in in getting another social media platform um, but then again if I do sign on to it I'll probably become addicted and love it but when I saw this locker room thing first of all I thought it was a Donald Trump podcast 
I, I think, look, all new things are welcome. Some, as Karen said, some will fail, some will succeed. And those that succeed generally deserve to. And, and Spotify, um, I'm, I don't really use Spotify very much, but they are able to spot winners, aren't they? Uh, and they're very, very good at that. Yeah, I feel like I should I should just say for Liz and Ian's benefit. So Clubhouse, as as the one who uses Clubhouse, is it a here, popular music beat combo? <laughs> yes, totally that. <laughs> it's basically if you think of it as a chat room, if you think of like a text based chat room, but it's that but audio. Um, and I use it for a couple different purposes. We have uh, there's a regular drop in discussion for fellow American expats that happens on a weekly basis that I've participated in. It sort of creates this little sense of community. But I think one interesting case study is. I'm I'm also a regular guest on a podcast where the podcast is reported by a clubhouse. And the only difference to that is that um, the audience members can be invited in. So if you want to do a Q&A, if you're a podcaster, you can do it via clubhouse. There's some facility to get um, audience members in to ask questions. So, I mean, I think it has its limitations, but it also has its opportunities. But as the presenter, you still have the control, do you, to, to invite those listeners in? People can't just start talking over you and then they're on the show. You can still shut them down um, and you can... You can choose. You can choose who's there, but I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty open platform. I mean, I, I was saying in that it could be a competitive phone in slightly facetiously, but actually, presumably, that is kind of why Spotify are interested in this space. You know, they're, they're obviously looking for radio style links in your daily drive and those sorts of playlists of pre recorded podcasts. And this, especially around sport, I mean, they brought a sport startup. You can imagine, mm. can't you, that it would be a threat to talk sport, for example, if they had a live phone-in about the rugby or the football that was happening on Spotify using this technology. I, I think it's man, the key is getting the audience in the first place. And we all know when you start something up, whatever it is, no matter how much money you've got behind you, it, it's not automatic that you get an audience for anything. I mean, you, you look at, shall we say, some radio startups over the last few years who found it incredibly difficult, even when they've got a big name behind them, to get this mass audience that... that their star presenters will, will actually want to have um so i think in the sports area there, there are lots of niches within sport that maybe are more difficult to find in other areas and, and there's a massive market for sports podcasts now i mean i listen to four or five football podcasts and i've only discovered three of them over the past three months and they are literally new startups and it, but it, but it's generally word of mouth that makes them popular now it, can you have enough words of mouth to make this sort of thing popular i'm not sure you're a West Ham fan, aren't you? I am. Indeed. Go on. I've never asked this question in my life, but what is the best West Ham podcast? Give them a, give them a shout the out. The best West Ham podcast is called More, M-O-O-R-E, i.e. Bobby, for your information, Ollie. More than just a podcast. And it's for fans. I, I appear on this podcast occasionally, but they record it on a Monday night, which obviously conflicts with the day job, so I don't do it very often now. Um, they, they basically spend two to three hours talking about the week's West Ham related news. And I listen to it while I'm driving home and it's just like listening to four mates down the pub chat. Yeah, typical that you choose a show that you're on. That's, that's <laughs> okay, why we have you on this. But thinking of this in terms of business, it reminds me a little bit of the rush to buy Friends Reunited. Do you remember when everybody got terribly excited about something that seemed to be going to work and then in the end it, it really came to, to very little, I think, um, for those who did pursue it. Um, and there is this chasing after something uh, that's often quite dangerous and can really be very a bad strategy for the original purchaser. So I, I don't know. I mean, Karen is probably in a better place to say whether or not she thinks this will work. Well, I suppose finally on that, Karen, 
the reason Friends Reunited didn't really work for ITV by the time they worked out what to do with it was because Facebook had come along. Absolutely, actually, I was just going to say that. <laughs> in, in this case, Spotify, I suppose, is the Facebook of audio, isn't it? And Facebook are going to be playing catch up to do their own live audio thing. So maybe this is the moment that it does go mainstream. Yeah, well, I mean, it is certainly Spotify's ambition to be the Facebook of audio. And I think they're, you know, they're taking a similarly, as I say, aggressive strategy to what Facebook did um, in buying up WhatsApp and Instagram. They're buying up other things. And I think I think Spotify is aware that there'll be winners and losers in each of the different areas they're making their bets in. Um, and clearly their intention is to kind of put their money behind what they think is a good bet and then use their power to you know put themselves put put that one in the winning position um doesn't mean there isn't robust competition though there is so it'll be really interesting to see what what comes out on top okay whilst we're talking about podcasting sort of actually let's discuss the new serial production that's about to drop uh karen it's called the improvement association have you heard the trailer i haven't heard the trailer but i know of the topic which i'm super excited about has anyone heard the trailer i've heard the trailer i can tell you it's quite dull i thought i mean it's about election fraud isn't it which should be quite exciting and it seems to tap into a lot of the blm chat as well because there's a component um about race in it but i was listening to that kind of two minute trailer not knowing the whole story and just thinking mm, not sure i want a deep dive with this presenter on this subject but maybe i'm i'm wrong tell us what it is oh dear well the, to- the topic is fascinating i mean it's a story that i followed really closely from my you know my political bent but in north carolina there was a house election um a u.s house election that was very narrowly appeared to be won by the republican candidate until it turned out that the republican candidate had been conspiring um with a you know consultant to the campaign who had been running um, a, a vote balloting, a, a sort of voter registration outreach scheme, had been just taking the votes of of the you know, mostly African American people he'd been working with and just um, ditching them effectively or filling them out fraudulently. So, um, and the, the thing that's fascinating about it is this is the kind of rumor that flies around, but it was just robustly proven. Um, and there was lots of drama around. It was his. It was this man's son, the candidate's son, who actually exposed the campaign. Um, so it was. It was a really fascinating, weird story and resulted in, I think, for one of the only times in U.S. history, a a House election being just overturned um, and they had to rerun the election because uh, it was it was so clearly fraudulent. So it's it's a fascinating story. I I would be surprised if the serial team can't make anything good out of it. But uh, um, sorry to hear that the presenter is dull. It's only my opinion. I'm just saying. (laughs) I guess the expectation is so high. They're one of the blockbuster brands now, aren't they, in podcasting, that I expect to be completely blown away when I press play. And I just wasn't. Maybe there's more competition out there these days, or I don't know. It just didn't, it wasn't hitting the mark for me in the way that that very first series of Serial from the moment you press play kind of sent shivers down your spine, you know? Can I, can I randomly pitch to you another podcast from a, from this, from a related team? <laughs> It's not about West Ham, is it? It's not about West Ham. Uh, check out Nice White Parents. Uh, fascinating one uh, from the New York Times uh, team, and uh, sorry, from the from the This American Life team and the Serial team, um, looking at a, a really interesting story around the New York school system and um, just you know endemic racism in it, but also kind of what happens when where white parents show up and exert their influence on schools. It was really fascinating. I, I learned a lot from it that I didn't expect. We will have more media news in brief after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Karen Lisnian is still with me to discuss some media news in brief. Uh, first up, some furlough news. Uh, News companies across the UK have continued needing financial support from the government. Uh, According to Press Gazette, that includes regional publishers JPI Media, Archant and Midland News, uh, as well as The Guardian, who are the only national newspaper to use the furlough scheme. Uh, But Al Jazeera and Tortoise Media joined the scheme in January for the first time. It now emerges and City AM were the only publisher to reduce their furlough payments. Liz, what does all of that say about the health of journalism? It's quite worrying in a way, isn't it? I mean, if people are being furloughed who should be journalists, who should be working on all the things we need to know at the moment, I think that's quite concerning. I think it's concerning that the Guardian's um, gone for the furlough scheme. I don't really know what their what, what their um, financial imperative would be there, why they would have to do that. Um, and it just makes me feel very uncomfortable, to be honest. It just doesn't seem right. It's a bit like saying, you know, nurses are on furlough, isn't it? Well, on that, Ian, the Guardian, I mean, they really pride themselves on having this unique business model and having the Scott Trust, you know, that they can invest in journalism. I mean, of all titles, there's a question mark about whether they should be using the furlough scheme at all, perhaps. I mean, I don't know how much the Scott Trust have sort of squirrelled away, but certainly I remember a few years ago, it was rumoured to be around the billion pound mark. So it does slightly stick in your craw when you hear that they are asking the taxpayer for funding. I think it's much smaller regional local newspaper publishers um, are in a bit of a fix. And I mean, the story that the Press Gazette reported about Time Out. Now, you can understand why Time Out would be in difficulty because they've got nothing to report on. So I don't think anybody's going to have a problem with with them resorting to uh, furlough money. Um, But look, in the end, if if people who read The Guardian don't like the fact that they've resorted to this, they will stop reading The Guardian. And the the customer, in a sense, is king here. If you disapprove of something, you withdraw your customer. Custom. Yeah, but then, Ian, the Guardian will want to put more people on furlough oh, circle, because fewer people are yeah. reading the Guardian. I yeah. mean, Karen, the timeout example is interesting, isn't it? Because it has been especially hard for free sheets because their distribution model has gone. People aren't going to tube stations to pick up their free copies. And as Ian says, there's no one advertising events that aren't happening in them. Um, and as a result, yeah, timeout media saw re- revenue plunge 58% in the second half of 2020. 
But <laughs> could there be a bright side there if they just managed to cling on long enough? You know, people are talking about the post-pandemic roaring 20s. I mean, Time Out could be the place to find out about it, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Time Out's a, a, an absolutely brilliant publication, and I wish them well. Um, I think it's it's noteworthy that one of the reasons why their their figures look so so particularly poor is that they'd had a very strong quarter immediately before, um, which suggests that their commercial model was working reasonably well. You know, they had switched; um, they were switching away from kind of relying on the print publication towards, you know, as you say, more free sheet distribution and and being advertiser funded. Seems to have been working reasonably well. I think they were in a pretty healthy position. So um, all the more painful for them to have had to go through this. But as you say, it feels like a situational problem rather than a structural problem for them. So um, I have every hope that, uh, you know, we would love to see them come roaring back. They're obviously add a lot of value to to the London scene. No, the big challenge now, I think, for everybody, whether they're a publisher, any part of the media, is to think, okay, what is the second half of this year going to look like? And how can we maximize our commercial advantage from it? And there is going, well, I hope this is another prediction that I get right. I think the economy in the next six months is going to go gangbusters. Now, there are all sorts of dangers in that. For the government, they'll be worried about inflation. Um, but I think for all sorts of all commercial organisations, if they get their strategy right for the second half of 2021 and the first half of 2022, they could be incredibly successful. And also, I suppose, Liz, the opportunity to take some of the learnings from the last year and a half about how you can have the agility to work from home, how it can be cheaper to use staff in a different way and actually make a product that might be more popular and generate more money that costs less to make. Absolutely. I think often difficult situations like this do breed innovation and excitement. The other thing which I think people don't refer to very often is that for an awful lot of people, there have been huge savings during lockdown. A lot of people who, you know, I eat out an awful lot, so I've saved money on that, haven't been able to, you know, go on cruises, not that I, well, would have been nice, but you know that all of those holidays that you don't take, you've got that money. So there's a lot of people sitting on quite a lot of ready money to go out and have fun and enjoy. So I think there might be something in what Ian's saying, because if there's all this money there ready to be spent, people are going to want to spend it on things. And that will feed into a short term huge boost for the economy. But on the other hand, it could be that everybody's terrified of dying and doesn't do anything except sit on their money. But I think the psychology is going to be more to spend, spend, spend. Although ironically, I mean, I know Time Out is a massive global business now, and they run food halls and, and live events and ticketing and all these other things that have taken a huge financial hit. But actually, if you think of them as the original London magazine that's been running for 50 plus years, actually, in the last year and a half, they'd have been better off, Karen, wouldn't they, sticking with a subscription model? I mean, that's the one sector of publishing that's been reliable is people getting a magazine through their door and paying a premium for it. Yeah, I mean, it might have given them a little bit of a buffer. I think it's interesting because I'm a classic example. I was a subscriber until they basically told me I couldn't be anymore um, because I, I love the magazine. And, and and had they been able to keep my custom, then perhaps mine and people like me, they would have had a little bit more of a of a, of a, of a, of a blanket to cover them, to protect them through the hard times. So maybe that's, maybe that's resiliency is something they'll have to be thinking about um, in the future, because this is surely not going to be the last global crisis that we will endure. I also think the whole nature of subscriptions is very interesting, because I think an awful lot of people with all sorts of subscriptions, whether it's, you know, subscribing to be in a choir or subscribing to a magazine or whatever, have just kept on with them throughout all of this, because there's always that hope of normality. And there's also this feeling that you're supporting an organisation, which you really value. So the subscription model is, is really core to keeping those finances going. But they'd already moved away from that. And I, I totally agree with Karen. If the, the small amount of subscription that would have been there probably wouldn't have gotten through this. This is a massive 
disaster for something that's marketing events, really, because there aren't any events. It's interesting as well, that definition of subscription versus support. And we were talking in the last episode of this in a podcasting um, context about subscribe versus follow. But in media consumption terms now as well, I mean, that's what The Guardian are asking you to do, isn't it? Support their journalism. It's not subscribe to the product. There's this kind of Patreon world where the audience is prepped to give money for nothing in return, additional to what they can get from reading it for free. And isn't it funny, we're criticising the BBC for not looking at the subscription model, and it may be that subscriptions are already out of date. All right, let's talk about um, Eleanor Mills, the former Sunday Times executive editor who's resigned from the Society of Editors Board. This is the continuing fallout from the Harry and Meghan interview, uh, cross-reference episodes past. Uh, Liz, what do you think the Society of Editors needs to do to get on top of this narrative? It's kind of run away. I think they need to modernise anyway, the Society of Editors. I think like a lot of things to do with broadsheet newspapers, they're very male dominated. They're quite um, old fashioned in their view. I sympathise totally with the stand that Eleanor's taken here. She gave them time. They didn't come back. And I think she did the right thing. It's not Piers Morgan here. You know, she was very uh, temperate in the way she dealt with it. She went to them. She said she thought their response was inadequate. She waited for a response and it didn't come. So quite right too. And I think that the idea that somehow you can say, well, we're not racist. It's just, that's just too simplistic. You know, we won't go into who's racist and who isn't, but it's just too easy to say, well, we're okay. And it's not like that. So I'm 100% behind Eleanor on this. She seems even to have been given the assurance that they were going about to make a statement climbing down from what had happened before essentially acknowledging the elements of the British media do have a problem with bigotry and then never made that statement. Well, it sounds to me as if somebody got at them in the meantime or whatever, but it's not like saying, well, we're bigots or there are bigots in this group. It's like saying, come on, we all need to check our privilege. I know that sounds very woke and whatever, but there are some things about woke which are really good and that's one of them. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like something the editor of the Daily Mail ever is going to come out and say. Well, no, but that's why the Society of Editors exists, doesn't it? Because it can be an umbrella organisation and they can be under that umbrella without necessarily holding the umbrella, if you take the analogy. I, I think that... The, the whole thing is just too pompous and it comes from a very old-fashioned sort of standpoint. I don't know if Ian would agree. Perhaps he thinks I'm, you know, being a bit I heavy. I don't know why you would think that. I would think that. Um, I, I, well, I don't know. I'm worried I'm being no, a bit unfair. I, I, I agree with quite a lot of what you've said there. Look, Eleanor Mills, um, I mean, is a friend of mine, so that that might have an influence on, on what I say. She used to commission me to write hugely long interviews, articles for the Sunday Times magazine. I was delivered about double the length of words that I should have done. Um, but I think that uh, she has an absolute point here. If you, as an, it doesn't matter whether it's a society of editors or whoever, in our society nowadays, if you haven't, as an organisation, looked to yourself in the mirror over the last year and thought, are we doing what we ought to be doing? Have we got a problem? And if we have, what are we going to do about it? I think most organisations have had that conversations, those conversations internally. Certainly various organisations I'm involved with have. Uh, and it's absolutely right to do that. Now, the Society of Editors have sort of stamped their feet and said, no, we have got no problem whatsoever. And yet we, as the newspaper buying public or, or website viewing public, can see that some of them absolutely do. Now, I don't expect the editor of the Daily Mail to go on television and say, uh, yes, we are a racist newspaper. I don't actually believe they're a racist newspaper, but they have had articles, they've written headlines that could lead people to believe that they are. Now, they are slightly, um, uh, they will say, well, of course, we now know that a lot of that interview, a lot of the things that Meghan Markle said in that interview have been proved to be factually incorrect. So they, they they can sort of lean on that as much as they like. 
but they still have a problem and they still have something to deal with and they need to deal with it. Yeah, but Karen, what Eleanor Mills wanted was for them to come out and make another statement apologising for the statement they made before. And for, I mean, this is what you do, isn't it? Talk to brands about PR and stuff. I mean, from from their point of view, would that not just sort of add a whole second act to this whole saga, which they're embarrassed by and they want to close down? doesn't mean they're not having the conversation internally. They just might not want the whole world to be part of it again. Okay. So if you're asking for my advice as a PR professional, um, I would point out that they're having the second act right now and they're not in control of it, right? So they've put Eleanor Mills in, in control of what the next version of the story is going to be. Whereas with a small amount, not even, it didn't have to be a mea culpa. It didn't have to be a rending of the rending of the close it could have just been a simple look clearly we've you know we've misstated our position obviously you know that there is work to be done a little bit of humility goes a long way um and you don't have to say that you think the entire industry is rotten from top to bottom you can just say look like all industries and like all people we all have to work on um on on uh, overcoming our inherent biases and that is something we take seriously and and by the way we would like our minority staff members who work for the for our organizations to understand that we hear them and we take that seriously it would have been easy to do and it would have solved a problem for them very quickly quickly. All right. One last newsroom news story, uh, and that's that ITN have warned Ofcom that they risk creating a news desert within the next two years unless action is taken to give great prominence to high quality news outlets. Ian, what do you make of what ITN have submitted to Ofcom? Well, I don't really understand what they're asking for. What what, what do they mean, um, gave prominence to high quality news outlets? We all know which outlets they are. What what do they want? A little stamp in the corner of the screen or something? Liz, you probably, I'm guessing, might have more sympathy with this. It, I, what they want is what they had before on Sky, which is prominence. They want that on YouTube and Facebook, don't they? That's what I interpreted it to mean. But how, how can they? How can that happen? I mean, when I go into, say, Netflix, what am I going to see? Like an ITN button or whatever? I, I'm with Ian on this, although I'm very broadly sympathetic towards ITN. I think they're, they're often overlooked in the way everyone stampedes to support the BBC. They're a great organisation and a great news provider. But I, I'm a bit vague about what they actually want as well. And I really did try in this one to be on their side, which is, you know, I might as well let my bias show. But I, I wasn't sure at all what it was that they were asking for, because it's not that there's going to be a news desert. It's going to be that there's a news smorgasbord of all sorts of crazy news outlets. That's the problem, if there's a problem at all. It's not that people aren't going to have news, it's going to have far too much news, far too much choice and be able to go down little niche, you know, we could have the whole uh, conspiracy theory news channel or whatever. So there's there's lots and lots of, of difficulties about the proliferation of news, but the, a, desert, a desert is not one of those difficulties. And what they want does, does baffle, baffle me too. But we must remember that they are an excellent news provider. And also that in terms of, of expense, that the money has already gone in to, to making the news the prime source of news. So actually reproducing the news on other channels is not a great expense. So I don't quite get the argument that it's too expensive for other organisations to carry that news. But you can't actually say to all um, providers of, of broadcast material, oh, you've got to have a news button and it's got to be ITN. Or it's, uh, I know that they're, what they're trying to say, but it's not practical enough, that their response isn't practical enough, I don't think. Is it, is it that complicated? I mean, it's just if you've got trending news on your service, they're saying the publicly funded stuff should be there. I mean, that's it, isn't it? But how would that work? How would you see that? I'm not convinced 
you already see it. It's all over the place. You know how to get Sky News. You know how to get ITN News. You know how to get. People Karen's shaking her head. So you butt in, Karen. Well, I think I. I, I mean, I'm. I'm not unsympathetic to the to the complications of it, but equally, I would say it has been a big problem in the re- in in recent years. That, um, as you rightly say, Liz, that it's difficult to ascertain which is the quality news outlets, which services we can trust. There has been. I mean, Edelman's trust data has shown that there's been a a system wide reduction in trust. Across Across the piece um, in media as well as in government in, in pretty much everything. Um, and so there's this loss of gatekeeper function has been a problem. And it is both technically possible, and I would argue probably in the best interest of the providers to find a better way of signaling um, which which sources of news can be taken as reliable with some justification and which are not. I think that Facebook has done a very poor job of trying to do that. Their efforts have been pretty pathetic so far. Um, and I think it also is a problem in terms of if you look at the television landscape, in terms of you, people's changing behaviors, I think um, if you look at streaming services, Netflix, etc. I mean, you can argue they have a lot of a lot of news on there, but actually not consumed in a news like format. They, what they have is lots of documentaries and so forth. So they don't really have anything that we would consider to be a regular news update. So I think it's not unreasonable to say that we should think about this. Um, maybe not. Maybe ITN hasn't handed them a ready-made solution, but I think it's. Um, it's something that would be in the best interest of both the consumer and I would argue the the regulators themselves to to find a way to make that work better. How what would it look like? What would I see when I was going to get this uh, peer, the public service broadcast news element when I'm doing my you well? Know, it would, well, it would depend. To... It would depend on the platform. Um, but you know, on Facebook, it could be as simple as giving more prominence to more trusted outlets, which is something that they've tried to do. They've just done a terrible job at it. I mean, it could be as simple as when you're clicking on trending news, you are presented with five news stories and one of them is always from, as Karen says, one of these PSBs. Yeah. But but this this is a this is a typical attempt of existing media companies trying to stop new entrants coming into the market uh, because they are scared that they will lose market share to these new entrants. You look at the barrage of criticism that has been aimed at GB News before it's even broadcast a single second of news output. Oh, it's the British Fox News. Well, Andrew Neil is absolutely adamant it is not the British Fox News. Well, we'll see when it comes on air. Uh, they The BBC, ITN, and to an extent Sky, all have a vested interest in this, in keeping new entrants out of the market. They're not going to be successful, though. But we're in an international world as well. And I I just wonder whether all of us being a bit more media savvy than your average news consumer. I mean, if you're talking about someone who, let's say, is in their 20s and lives in Britain and is presented with a news story from RT and a news story from Deutsche Welle, and they're in Britain, and they don't know which one of those is more trusted. They're both just foreign news outlets. Not every 20-year-old is able to navigate that in the same way that the people who run the okay. likes of YouTube well, are. It's very simple. Ofcom should uh, withdraw the license from RT. It's as simple as that. Because it is not a trusted news service. We all know that. We know that it's funded by the Kremlin. We know that it's completely biased. And I, I don't understand why don't it still has its license. Right, but when it's on Facebook, its license is less material, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the point. I mean, because Ian, you're talking about new entrants to the market. And I'm not going to get into you a, a question about GB News, because as you say, we haven't seen it yet. So we don't know what it's going to look like. But a lot of the new entrants to the market on many of these platforms are not actually news providers at all. They're malicious uh, proprietors of false news. 
under the guise of deliberately working very, very hard to make themselves look like credible outlets and consumers are misinformed. And I think it's, you know, it is a problem. And I don't think we can just wish it away by saying, oh, well, the market will decide because it, it hasn't and it won't. Um, the new entrant, many of the new entrants are just not credible sources of information. I suppose the other point, though, Karen, is that to take my demographic example, it might not be that younger people don't know that the news at 10 is on ITV. It might just be they don't want to watch it. Uh, and you know, if they, they know where it, it is, they're just not interested. And if they don't want to watch it, that's absolutely fine with me. <laughs> right. But, but if it's, a, if it's, but it should be prioritized over other outlets, which are not doing journalism in any, in any meaningful way. If ITN want to reach your demographic, they could easily create a strategy to do so. I'm not aware that they actually have done. They don't have a 24 hour news channel. I don't remember seeing clip after clip going viral on Twitter from ITN, but I see that from Sky News. I see that from the BBC. On Channel 4 News, you do see Channel a bit. Channel 4 News, you? you do as well, but um, you could class that as opinionated news as well nowadays. Well, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Let's park this argument and talk about cricket. That'd be nice, won't it? Um, because uh, BBC Local Radio has secured the rights to county cricket in England and Wales for another four years. Uh, do people realise how much coverage there is of cricket in local radio? And is it good news for cricket fans? Ian, you've told us that you listen to football podcasts. Are you a cricket man as well? I do like cricket, but I could think of nothing worse than listening to local radio cricket commentary of a county cricket match. I'm thinking the audience must be in the dozens or the hundreds for that and you could say oh that's public service broadcasting but I mean you only have a limited amount of hours to broadcast in a day and the one thing that isn't in this story is how much the BBC have paid to have this uh, privilege and I think I could probably think of better ways of spending that money. I suppose Liz it depends on the uh, audience appreciation indexes though doesn't it? I mean the audience who are listening love it. In, in fairness Ian, there'll be a lot of factors going on here with, lo- with local appreciation and, and so on and local sponsorship and all the rest of it. I mean it's something which doesn't interest me terribly. It interests my partner a lot. He likes cricket and he likes county cricket and so on. It does seem a bit arcane and as you say there isn't the bandwidth to have infinite sort of arcane and odd sports on there it depends whether or not you think cricket's an important way of of life and therefore should be reflected by the bbc i I don't see an awful lot of harm in it except if it takes time away from things i would like to listen to well it's going to be it's mostly on long wave and medium wave i think when local stations are broadcasting it so it's not as if they're depriving exactly exactly is it is it a problem it's sort of like i don't really know why we're talking about it sorry i don't want to be rude about this incredibly (laughs) wonderful podcast but it doesn't really rock my boat Sorry, but well, I don't mind. Other, I don't mind other people watch uh, listening well, to it. That might be the story. I mean, local radio have been able to get the rights to this because probably there aren't any national media players that are interested in it, Karen. Well, the, the, there's probably no competition for it. But think about how many people you see going to a county cricket match, and that will tell you of the level of interest. I mean, this week also the BBC, I think, have paid uh, million with Sky millions of pounds for the rights to cover uh, women's football. Now. Um, that may send a signal, it may send a message, but how many people are actually really interested in watching women's football to the extent they ever go to a match? Uh, when I ran UK Living, we did a really nice line in women's football and we got really quite good figures for it. It was really quite popular. Yeah, I think women's women's football actually does have a sizable audience. I wouldn't put it in the comparison with uh, with local cricket. Um, in the US, the women's football team does much better commercially than the men's team. They have far more fans than than any of our men's national teams. So, um, so yeah, big up to the girls there. Yeah, you, maybe you should give it a chance. And all this West Ham stuff sounds like a bit too much to me. You know, why don't you diversify a bit? Yeah, but- 
okay, okay. I'm going I'm to lay my cards on the table. Watching women's football is like watching it at 33 and a third RPM compared to the men's at 45. I don't think it's entertaining. I'm sorry. I'm not that I'm really not I'm trying I'm not being sexist about it though I know everybody's going to say I am but I just don't get the same enjoyment out of watching even if it's West Ham women playing there's a documentary on BBC3 about them that, that was actually quite interesting but as a sport it's not it's just not the same is it the case that in this fragmented media landscape though there are so many narrow and niche interests I'm not saying women's football is necessarily one of those but certainly as you say county cricket probably is there are so many of those sorts of interests that they're best catered for by the silos of podcasting and, you know, channels on Discord or whatever than they are on local radio these days. I mean, it, it is still public money being spent on it, isn't it? Yeah, and, and look, there, there are so many different um, outlets now for everything. And as you say, um, I was listening to Laura, Laura Koonsberg's COVID Confidential podcast. They were two-episode podcast, sort of doing a deep dive into what's happened. And it was quite, I mean, at times it was quite funny. You think, well, this this would never get onto Radio 4 because of the, the, the format. Uh, it, was, it was very podcast. You think, well, it's great that podcasts exist for that. And they exist for, there are lots of non-league football uh, podcasts and lots of lots of really niche sports that none of us would be remotely interested in. But you don't always have to chase the biggest audience, I suppose. Yeah, we're all glad that uh, podcasts exist. Uh, which brings us headlong into our final format point, the Media Podcast Quiz. Uh, this oh. week, it is entitled <laughs> Backwards Thinking. Uh, I will read you some media news headlines from this week in reverse order. You just have to tell me what the story is. Uh, it's best of three, and you buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So, uh, Liz, you will say? Uh, Liz. Ian, you'll say? Ian. And Karen, you'll say? Karen. Here's story number one, but what's the story? BBC leaving after News GB to McCoy, Simon, Simon, uh, Karen. Uh, I think the story is Simon McCoy is leaving uh, BBC News to go to GB News. Yes. A good hire, Liz. What do you think? Yeah, I do. I like Simon McCoy and he's he's quite uh, unusual. In, and, you know, he does make these um, remarks sometimes, which we've all seen the outtakes. And I've known him for a long, long time. He's a very uh, professional and... I would have thought temperate sort of person, which I wouldn't have expected to find Simon on, uh, you know, Britain's Fox TV. So there you go. That plays into Ian's point about we ain't seen nothing yet. But I do think he's a good hire. The only thing, as I say about G- uh, GBTV that bugs me slightly is I don't think we've got high profile, high profile enough women. So watch this space again. Yeah, unless, of course, by the time this comes out, we all know that Kay Burley is doing The Breakfast Show. Uh, here is uh, question number two. Algorithms anti-misinformation Facebook by Hitmash Daily. What's the story? Buzzing with your name, you know the answer. <laughs> Shall I say it again slower? Algorithms, anti-misinformation, Facebook by Hit Mash Daily. And you literally just need to reverse the words and then you've got the story. Uh, Ian, uh, Daily Mash Ian. hit by algorithm misinformation. Close enough. Yes, the story is that the Daily Mash... Uh, was excluded from Facebook's anti-misinformation algorithms, even though it is satire. Uh, good. And uh, I've lost track now of who's winning. But anyway, <laughs> story number I'm three. Winning. I'm good. winning. Good, fine, that'll do. Uh, review strategy media amid delayed briefings, Ian. press televised, 10 number. Uh, Ian. Uh, oh. number. Ian clearly was there in front, I'm afraid. 
number 10 press briefing room that's be, be was used for the first time by Boris Johnson this week. I think Allegra Stratton is going to start her uh, daily or three times a week briefings on the 17th of May, six months later than planned. The whole thing's cost 2.6 million. Um, it does look a bit Kremlin-esque, doesn't it, in the, in the colour scheme? It's a bit gaudy. Well, it also has a blue screen in it, Karen, which just seems like a basic fail, doesn't it, if they don't want to be Darren Dutton all the way to the bank? I, I can only assume that they did it on purpose because they have set themselves up perfectly to be memefied. Maybe they theorised that they'd rather uh, they'd rather generate a million negative memes and be heard than, uh, than go silently into that good night. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, as our resident Yank, do you think we need White House-style briefings? Uh, I don't think the White House needs White House style briefings. Actually, one of the big the big fascinating things to watch in the Biden administration has been how well we all get along in the media landscape without having daily White House. Pre- I mean, the White House press briefings have been very effective, but um, Biden's only done was- one press conference and it's kind of been fine. <laughs> you know, I don't think we necessarily need to speak from the, the podium of the White House all the time, um, you know, put out the information from the subject matter experts. Do we not all miss Donald Trump's press conference? I mean, come on, whatever we think of him, it it was box office TV, whereas Biden's, I mean, I'm sorry, it was it was a complete and utter snooze fest. I love and I think, I think a, a president or a prime minister <laughs> in the modern day needs to do more than one press conference every couple of months. Though having said that, I can't remember the last time Boris Johnson did one. Well, exactly. We're going to get Allegra Stratton, who at the moment, is it, what's she being paid? 120 grand a year? I mean, that doesn't seem like a value for money right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think she'll earn every penny of that. Can I just say something I think is quite intriguing? Because Karen talked about going gently into that good night, which is a quote from Dylan Thomas, who is a very famous Welsh poet, who was probably featured in that documentary on BBC Four, which Ian talked about. So we've come full circle. (laughs) Thank you for trying to raise the tone there whilst Ian goes full shock jock. Let's bring back Donald Trump and cancel women's football. Uh, Nonetheless, he has won the quiz. Uh, Ian Dale, congratulations. Uh, And uh, thank you. To all our guests, Karen Robinson, Liz Howell and Ian Dell. We're all uh, heading off to Clubhouse now to have the after show debrief. Uh, but we'll be back in two weeks time with uh, more of this sort of thing. Uh, do follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss our briefings. I've been Ollie Mann, the producers Matt Hill and Peter Price. The Media Podcast is a Rethink Audio and PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.